Stuff Podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Wright, and welcome to The Long Read from Stuff. This week's episode is called The Bard and the Dame. It's by press feature writer Philip Matthews, who joins me now. Hi, Philip. Hi, Michael. Uh, So, listeners can probably guess who one of these characters are, uh, but tell us who is the Dame and what is her Shakespearean connection? Well, the Dame is Dame Nio Marsh, who uh, is probably better known as a crime writer these days. She was one of the so-called queens of crime writing and has a crime writing award named after her, which is why you hear so much about Nio Marsh in that context. But she was also a theatre director and producer here in Christchurch for decades and revived Shakespeare, uh, live Shakespeare productions, not just for Cantabrians, but for all New Zealanders, really, in the 1940s. Yeah, so you're right. Naya Marsh is a pretty well-known name for somebody who was alive last century and died 40 years ago. Um, but she is best known as a crime writer, kind of the New Zealand's Agatha Christie or something if you like. But there is a lot more to her. Yeah. And she lived in Christchurch. And she lived here in Christchurch. She's funny. If you're, if you're slightly old enough to remember her in the 70s on TV, she was one of those figures uh, who was kind of famous, but you're never quite sure what for. And she was very distinctive, uh, had a deep voice, had a really uh, perfect kind of patrician accent, uh, spoke very well, was consulted for her opinions by people from um, who were touring. She's one of those people who would be appearing in, in shows about New Zealand made by the British because she had this British connection too. So she was kind of famous. And then you think, well, what's she famous for? And you go back into the books, but also this theatre work as well. The story touches on the group, which was this group of artists, poets, mm. writers, actors in the 20s in Christchurch who kind of challenged ideas and were kind of remarkable set of people. And she was here her whole life. It's kind yeah. of remarkable that she, yeah. somewhere like Christchurch, you had someone like this doing her thing. It is remarkable. And Christchurch was kind of, well, there's two, there's two ways you can say it. In the pre-World War II era, Christchurch became a kind of centre of culture in New Zealand. So you had Lilburn and Curnow, McCann uh, and Agatha, um, Nye Marsh and Agatha Christie. Was Agatha Christie there? I don't think, I think she, she, she was been. English. She but... might have been. She might have popped in. <laughs> No, so Christchurch was a kind of a centre of culture and, uh, until after World War II. Uh, but also it was a kind of a backwater uh, which she recognised and so she spent a lot of her time in London too, um, which she was of that generation who thought of England as home and so they'd be going home, they'd be going back to Britain. Mm. Uh, and so she had that really pronounced Britishness about her. And what's been interesting actually since the Queen died I mean, thinking it's that kind of era as well. You know, when the Queen toured with Prince Philip in 1953 and 54, apparently three quarters of New Zealanders came out to see her in the same in Australia. So we really thought of ourselves as British at this time. And I think she was a classic example of someone who thought of herself as British, but also reinforced a kind of British identity, especially in Christchurch, which had that very English Mm. uh, kind of image of itself too. There's a couple of great quotes of hers that we'll hear in here. Um, did she even like New Zealand? I mean, she talks about us like we're Philistines, but she kind of seems determined to save us from ourselves. That's right. In some she, way. I think she felt like she had this responsibility to civilise us. 
and, uh, and to correct our horrible speech patterns. <laughs> I was thinking she would be horrified if she turned on TV in the year 2022 in New Zealand and, and um, heard us speak because our accents have deteriorated so badly since this time. <laughs> All right, let's get into it. Thanks, Philip. Here is Philip reading his story, The Bard and the Dame. Dame Nio Marsh died in Christchurch 40 years ago at the age of 86. In her time, she was among the best-known New Zealanders in the world, a cultural icon sought out for her opinions by touring chroniclers such as Alan Wicker and J.B. Priestley, one of the four so-called queens of crime writing and a theatre director who single-handedly revived Shakespeare in this country. But four decades is a long time. Do people still read the 32 detective novels she published between 1934 and 1982? Maybe. But because of its very nature, people are less familiar with her pioneering work in theatre. Some art forms are built to last. Books end up in libraries, paintings stay in galleries. But, as former court theatre artistic director and actor Alric Hooper explained in a 2012 lecture about his early mentor, theatre is ephemeral. The sadness of the theatre is that the moment the last word of the production is spoken, it lives on only in the photographs and the memories of the spectators, Hooper said. Nio Marsh's detective fiction will keep her name alive in the world, but her theatre will remain only in the heads of the last spectators and the history books. A decade later, even fewer participants and spectators are around to remember Marsh's pioneering theatre work over three decades in Christchurch, from the early 1940s to the early 1970s. But it does live on in those history books and in photographs and newspaper records, and there has been one significant attempt to revive it for a 21st century audience. Marsh was well into her 40s when she was approached by two young men from the Drama Society of what was then called Canterbury College and is now the University of Canterbury. A dedicated Anglophile, Marsh liked to divide her time between London and Christchurch, but World War II curtailed that kind of travel. She wrote more than 20 years later in her autobiography Black Beach and Honeydew that the two young men had no money, no membership and no actors. They and the other student volunteers were inexperienced and uninformed, but Marsh could shape them like clay. They responded to her direction and control. But it wasn't always easy. There were nights during the early rehearsals, Marsh wrote, when I thought... We must never, never ask an audience to sit through this mutilation. It seemed to help if she explained her stage directions and rugby metaphors. The footballers often did better than the moody intellectuals. Despite all this, when Marsh's Hamlet opened in 1943 in a college assembly hall known as the Little Theatre, it was more than packed. Students hung from the rafters. Christchurch in wartime was a city starved of culture. There had been no professional Shakespeare productions for two decades. Two of Marsh's innovations in Hamlet owed much to necessity. Performing in modern dress made the play immediate and dynamic, but also fabrics were hard to find in wartime, making costumes tricky. The play was cut down to two hours with a short interval, and not just for dramatic purposes. 
but so that it ended before the last tram left Cathedral Square. Hamlet brought something of the urbane West End avant-garde to an Antipodean garden city, biographer Joanne Drayton wrote in an account that reinforces how provincial Christchurch was. Marshall was influenced by modern production starring Alec Guinness that she saw in London in 1938, plus a wartime production in Christchurch in 1915. She was aware of international trends, and Alric Hooper thinks Orson Welles' famous fascist-era Julius Caesar influenced her own production in 1953. Poet and reviewer Alan Curnow raved about Hamlet and the following years of Fallow. Marsh's company of students took both plays to Auckland and Wellington during the waning months of the war. When controversy broke out in the capital, she relished it. The players feel that if New Zealanders can get angry about a Shakespearean production, there is still hope for the theatre in this country. In 1945, Marsh said 20,000 New Zealanders had seen her Shakespeare productions. She later took Othello and Pirandello's six characters in search of an author to Sydney, Melbourne and Canberra, where the Canterbury student players met the Lord Mayor and Lady Mayoress of Sydney and read one good review after another in the Australian press. The Pirandello was also performed privately for Laurence Olivier and Vivian Lee when they toured New Zealand with the Old Vic Company in 1948. Olivier reportedly inspired one of Marsh's most talented stars, Bridget Lenehan, to skip acting school and go directly into professional theatre in London. Marsh became increasingly motivated by the idea of a national theatre group, as New Zealand was, she said, dramatically speaking, the most ill-served of the civilised countries. The idea grew, and in London in 1950, she proposed a British Commonwealth Theatre Company to play in Britain in what were then called the Dominions. She painted a grim picture of her home country's cultural isolation. New Zealand is a lonely group of islands and a great waste of waters down at the bottom of the world, and her inhabitants are morbidly conscious of their isolation, she said. If you take a number of British people and leave them in warm storage for a hundred years in the South Seas and then open the oven door, we are what they turn into. It's easy to see that as a dated and monocultural view of New Zealand. Her Anglophilia struck people as very Christchurch, although Hooper thinks there was an element of disguise or play-acting in her patrician attitudes. She was famously a stickler for correct pronunciation. She thought the New Zealand accent was indistinct and ugly and happily delivered public lectures about it. She was horrified when she heard a Canterbury weather forecaster say there will be showers over the Yelps. She could be imperious, but she could also be funny. The British Commonwealth Theatre Company got going in 1951 with Bridget Lenehan as one of three New Zealand actors in the group. The others were British, Canadian, South African and Australian, and included John Schlesinger, later famous as the director of the Dustin Hoffman movies Midnight Cowboy and Marathon Man. With Marsh as artistic director, the company set off for New Zealand and Australia, performing Six Characters in Search of an Author, Shakespeare's Twelfth Night, and George Bernard Shaw's The Devil's Disciple. 
but the tour was a failure and the group disbanded before the end of the year. Plans to go on to Canada and South Africa were abandoned. Marsh later wrote that the tour took place under comically disastrous conditions. The final performance was in Blenheim, where rats darted in and out of dressing rooms and rain dribbled through the roof onto the stage. That seemed to be the end of international ambitions, but Marsh kept producing Shakespeare plays for Christchurch audiences for two more decades. While it was a university drama society, Marsh's core group of actors stayed involved long after graduation, meaning adults with day jobs as lawyers or engineers rehearsed alongside keen young students. Marsh also remained a highly visible public evangelist for the artistic value of Shakespeare, which he rated above the relative mindlessness of movies. With the exception of a group of European productions and a few masterpieces from other countries, what film asks its audience to do more than sit and chew and painlessly accept, she said in 1962. Shakespeare's public really did have to think, and since the plays were well attended, we can only suppose that his Elizabethan and Jacobean audiences were prepared to do so, and, what is more important, enjoyed the experience. When she appeared on the BBC's Desert Island Discs radio show in 1968, there were two extracts from Shakespeare in her list of six tracks, one from Twelfth Night and one from Henry V. The latter was a recording of Olivier. Now over 70, she began to slow down. She had said that Twelfth Night in 1967 would be her last Shakespeare in Christchurch, but she was persuaded to do A Midsummer Night's Dream in 1969 with Elric Hooper as Puck and the young Nigel Sam Neal as Theseus before she directed her final Shakespeare in 1972 when Henry V opened the newly built Christchurch Town Hall. Then, in a fitting conclusion to her theatre career, she directed another former protégé, actor Jonathan Elsom, in his one-man show about the bard, Sweet Mr Shakespeare, in 1975 and 76. By then, she was pushing 80. In his 2012 lecture, Hooper seemed both clear-eyed and proud of Marsh's contribution. Her theatrical career was almost entirely in New Zealand, of an amateur nature, and associated with one city, Christchurch, and one organisation, the Drama Society of Canterbury University, he said. Yet she became a figure of immense power and influence. He spoke with a sense that it was all vanishing. The clippings had faded, and the photos looked odd, as photos of old plays often do. Even the memory of her extraordinary persona and height has diminished, he said. Who remembers the elegant figure in the sealskin coat? Who recalls the deep throbbing voice? Who can summon the arching ash of her cigarette, neglected during an intense talk on the play? And where now are those strange places we rehearsed? The rowing club storage shed, the church hall in the south of the city, the abandoned foundry, and Nio's large thermos of hot soup which tasted of garlic and strange herbs.
I think you're conflating a whole bunch of issues. You don't want to be held to account well, no, on I, I, rising child no, abuse numbers. You can manipulate crime statistics. I, I promised I wouldn't have a tattoo about gotcha journalism. Hang into the National Party's no, attack line there. No, that, that, I think that, it would be a resignation offence if I didn't deliver tax reduction. Yeah, that, yeah we're, I'm not worried about it at all. That's, Nothing that's in there. That on. sits with you perfectly fine. That's what, we're, that's what we're focused on. Whatever happens in politics, the weird, the wonderful, the important, the thought-provoking, we got you. Listen to Tova wherever you get your podcasts. David Hinden is another who remembers. He was just 21 when Marsh cast him as Kent in King Lear in 1956, and he stayed a Marsh regular until 1972, when he was one of two actors to play the lead in the massive Christchurch Town Hall production of Henry V. There was a personal connection. Hinden is my father-in-law, and I'd heard stories of his acting career from long before I was on the scene and saw the memorabilia. I noticed the large tinted photo on the lounge wall of the man in costume as Henry V with sword and helmet. There were fondly recalled stories about Marsh's grand Christmas parties when the children of her actors would put on plays and be rewarded with gifts from what the kids remembered as huge Christmas boxes. There were also stories about the legendary Christchurch lawyer and actor Mervyn Sticky Glue. How could anyone forget that nickname? Once, on a tour of the Nyo Marsh House in Kashmir, I saw the word Hinden next to a scribbled phone number on an open page of Marsh's old address book, as though he were on speed dial. Hinden even appeared in British writer J.B. Priestley's 1974 book, A Visit to New Zealand, where he was a handsome Shakespearean leading man at a dinner party hosted by Marsh, along with some other theatrical friends, such as Mervyn Thompson, Gerald LaSalle's and Helen Holmes. It was Holmes who took Priestley on a tour of the Christchurch Town Hall. Priestley called it a knockout. He went on, We have a number of cities in England that could make Christchurch look like a little town, but not one of these cities, I am excluding London, can show us anything they have built for many years that can match this town hall. Priestley had heard the talk about Christchurch's sense of Englishness and he wrote perceptively that the city represents a dream carried 13,000 miles down into the Antipodes and subtly changing as soon as it began to be realised. He was told Christchurch was sleepy and lackadaisical, but his experience contradicted that. I asked my father-in-law about his career with Marsh. I was a quiet, shy introvert who had never been allowed to do anything, he said. Boy Scouts, tramping, staying overnight with a friend, it was always out of the question. His impressions of Marsh were of someone impressive, professional, overwhelming, active, empathetic. A shy student who was almost struck mute with nervousness could be spoken to with infinite tact and understanding and would soon be performing. He remembers rehearsals for sword fights with Marsh showing the youngsters how it was done by collapsing onto the floor or falling downstairs. And the actors? Bridget Lenehan was before my time, he said. Really talented people like Alric Hooper, Sam Neill and James Lawrenson took off overseas and made acting their careers. Sticky Glue was a character backstage and in the pub, but not a very serious actor. Once he scared the cast when he disappeared down to the pub between scenes 
and showed up five minutes before his next queue. Nio quietly blacklisted him thereafter. While Hooper is right about those fading newspaper clippings, theatre reviews from the press, now digitised at Papers Past, can help bring memories back from oblivion. You can scan for superlatives. Hinden's Kend in King Lear was said to be particularly notable. Also making his Marsh debut, Alric Cooper played the fool with great sympathy in the same production. Hinden's Henry in Henry V in 1957 had a fiery impetuosity and his soliloquies were feelingly uttered. His confident bearing and fine voice were on display when he was Macduff and Macbeth in 1962. His hotspur was praised in the following year's Henry IV, and on it goes. Then we reach 1972, when Marsh made the unusual decision to have two Henrys acting on alternate nights. Hinden was one, and university student Desmond Woods was the other. The press reviewer, theatre academic Howard McNaughton, seemed to prefer the older over the younger. Hinden also remembers how Marsh's connections and stature gave her amateur cast valuable exposure to experienced overseas actors. Here are some names. Emlyn Williams, Donald Wolfert, Max Adrian and Joyce Grenfell. These British actors, friends of Nio, would from time to time be touring New Zealand and she would have them to her place for dinner, Hinden said. We were lucky to be invited. They had a profound effect on me. On stage, Donald Wolfert had always struck me as something of a poseur. But in real life he was a different man who cared deeply about the whole profession. Max Adrian was so self-effacing and apologetic, you wondered if he had any self-confidence. It reminded me of one night in the 1960s when I went to a performance of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf at the Theatre Royal and was blown away by the powerful performance of the leading man, George, who dominated and commanded the action. After the show, I stopped for a coffee in Cathedral Square and noticed at an adjacent table a quiet mouse of a man, also having a coffee and reading a book. He was slight and unobtrusive. It was George. I came to understand how a quiet introvert could face 1,200 people on stage to deliver a soliloquy on the eve of a battle as a king, but become a tongue-tied stutterer complimenting our director at curtain time as myself. While theatre is ephemeral, the buildings tend to last longer, even in quake-prone Christchurch. When Canterbury University opened the Nyo Marsh Theatre in 1967, it was named for Marsh's tremendous contribution to the cultural life of the university. That contribution came full circle in 2019, when Marsh's original wartime Hamlet was restaged there. A play that was radically topical seven decades earlier had become a period piece. Polly Hoskins was an MA student in English, whose topic was New Zealand women writers. Marsh's name kept appearing in every movement or genre she researched. She was an artist in the group when it began challenging Christchurch conservatism in the 1920s. She was a prolific and famous crime writer, and of course, she was a theatre director. Hoskins has an idea about Marsh, that she was both specifically rooted in Christchurch, but also rootless, in a way that makes her the epitome of the modern New Zealand woman artist. 
She remained unmarried and childless. She supported herself. She pursued her own interests. Hoskins also learned that Marsh made books for each show she directed, which included the edited scripts, her notes in the margins, and detailed drawings of staging and even blocking, meaning the movements and placement of actors. The books are in the Alexander Turnbull Library in Wellington. They are both a time capsule and an instruction manual. This means we now have insight into how she worked as a theatre director, Hoskins says, and we're able to have a clear sense of how the shows worked, including the delivery of lines, movement on the stage, costumes and music. This also means her theatre work can be written about, analysed and restaged. That is exactly what Hoskins did, with a different generation of the same drama society that came to Marsh for help back in the 1940s. The 1943 Hamlet was restaged in 2019 for the reopening of the Nio Marsh Theatre, according to Marsh's careful and very specific instructions. A score composed for the play by Douglas Lilburn was also found and performed. The script and the score were then published by Canterbury University Press with an informative introduction by Hoskins. She makes an interesting leap. Could Hamlet have appealed to Marsh as a writer of murder mysteries? Marsh remains an intriguing figure and utterly unique, even for those who never knew her. Everything about her and she is still something of a Christchurch personality, seems modern and intelligent, Hoskins says. And her involvement with students seemed to keep her young. There was one last tribute. After she finished the study that became a book, Hoskins and some suitably inspired student friends drove down to Peel Forest in South Canterbury, where Marsh is buried at the Church of the Holy Innocents. They put flowers on her grave, And, because Marsh was an inveterate smoker, they left a cigarette next to the flowers. That was The Bard and the Dame on the long read from Stuff, written and read by Philip Matthews and produced by me, Michael Wright. This episode was edited by Connor Scott. If you're listening via the Stuff website, you can hear this story and many more like it on the Long Read podcast, available on all the usual podcast apps. If you liked what you heard, please give us a five-star rating and a review. It helps other listeners find us. Thanks for listening.